We're continuing our series in the Psalms called Collide, and if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Psalm 113, Psalm 113 today. Um, It's on page 510 in the Black Bibles, if you want to grab one of those nearby, don't have one, but want to pick that up and follow along, page 510, Psalm 113. The series Collide, the idea behind it is that emotion meets truth in the Psalms. And so we've been challenged to bring our very real emotions, authentic emotions, into collision with the absolute truth of God's Word, to live as whole people before God. And so that's been the challenge, that's been the stretching of us as God's people as we've been studying the Psalms together. This week we're looking at really a very short, simple Psalm here, Psalm 113. We're calling it Collide with Praise. It's just a simple command for us to praise God. Um, we, we need to praise God. Chris just talked last week as he was uh, leading us in one of these lament songs from Psalm 42, that it's good even when you don't feel uh, sad to practice bringing your sadness before God. And that's what we do when we sing a sad song in church. It's also good when you don't feel like celebrating to practice celebrating God's goodness. And that's really what Psalm 113 is about. It's, it's calling us, commanding us to praise God. We're commanded to praise Him. We don't always feel like it, but it is good for us. It's transformative for us, and that's what we see here as we've been studying the Psalms. It's also interesting to note that this is one of the shorter ones, right? One of the simple, short songs that we have, one of the short little praise choruses, if you will, of the Psalms. There are over 50 of these out of the 150 Psalms. Uh, And so sometimes Christians like to argue over whether we should sing long, complicated songs or whether we should uh, sing short, simple songs. And the book of Psalms gives us both. So I think that's that's my answer. Really, let's do both and. uh, And we see that in the Psalms. So let's read Psalm 113 together. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Amen. I'm going to ask God to help us. Let's pray together and ask God for his guidance. God, we thank you that you love us. Uh, We pray that you would teach us how to be a people of praise, Uh, what that means, help us to understand. Uh, God, help us to praise you uh, when we feel like it, to to give you due and not just our circumstances, but to recognize you as God. And the times when we don't feel like it, God, help us to praise you as, as the one that's deserving of all good things. We thank you for who you are, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a, uh, one of my favorite bands called The Shins. They, they wrote a simple praise song. Um, they, it's interesting, James Mercer's lead singer of The Shins, and he was really kind of an, a negative, cynical songwriter. You know, there's a lot of those out there, right? Kind of brooding, melancholy, artistic types writing songs. And he wrote a lot of that negative sort of music. And their last album, a lot of critics have noticed, became more positive. Uh, you're kind of seeing more, more positive uh, attributes, more praise, more blessing come out of this album. Now, he's not a believer by any means, but all human beings praise the things that they love. And so I wanted you to see an example of that in, in this song. It's not praising of God, but it's praising of something he loves. It's a song 
he wrote about his wife, just talking about uh, what a blessing she was in his life. Of course, he doesn't use the word blessing, uh, but this is the way the song goes. It says, well, this is just a simple song to say what you've done. I told you about all those fears and away they did run. You sure must be strong, and you feel like an ocean being warmed by the sun. And so the name of the song is Simple Song. And what it is, is it's a song of praise. We praise the things that we love, the things that we think are wonderful, we praise. We say, this is great, you should try it. Or let me tell you about this friend, or let me tell you about this business, or let me tell you about this thing that's happened in my life. We naturally praise that which we think is wonderful. Some friends of mine have been rereading a book called Desiring God by John Piper, and he makes much of this concept of uh, enjoying and praising God as our ultimate good, as our ultimate joy. And Piper quotes C.S. Lewis from his book, Reflections on the Psalms. And so Lewis notes this as he's writing on the book of Psalms. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So I'm going to read that again. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is, its impo- uh, it is its appointed consummation. So praising something good is actually part of enjoying something good. Do you, do you follow what he's saying? He's saying praising is not just talking about like past tense, oh, that was good, and there you go, let me talk about it. it it's part of it. Part of enjoying something is praising it. And so again and again, the scriptures challenge us to praise God. We're commanded to enjoy God, not because God is narcissistic, but because God is good. He he genuinely loves us, and so he invites us to enjoy his goodness. He is so good, he, he cares about our joy even more than we do. And so when he challenges us or corrects us or calls to us, he's not trying to squash our fun, but he's trying to help us to find ultimate fun in him. In him is found ultimate joy, ultimate enjoyment, ultimate wonder. And when we express that with our mouth, it's called praise. And C.S. Lewis says, John Piper agrees, and I think I would agree as well, that that's part of the enjoyment of something really good is saying, this is so good. This is so good. You need to enjoy this too. This is so good. And so we're commanded again and again throughout the Psalms to praise God. In this simple little song here, we're told we should praise the Lord. We should praise God. We should speak well of his name. We should bless his name. We should talk about all the the blessings in him by regarding his name highly, by glorifying him. The first reason that we're given here in the psalm is that he's a big God. He's a big God. He's bigger than anything else. And so we're going to praise the big God. And we see this in verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. We have a lot of repetition here. Again, if, if you don't like repetition in music, I'm, I'm sorry. It's in the Bible. Um, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. So this is a vision of a God that's above everything. He is a big God. He is the only true God. He is the biggest of all powers, of all gods, of all goods, He's the big God. So we should praise him just for how big he is, how great he is, how wonderful he is, how far he exceeds everything else. So we see this vision. We're we're commanded to praise him. We're told to 
Praise Him for how big and how great He is. And in verse 3 it says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And so what he's talking about here is not time. We often think about uh, rising of the sun to the setting of the sun as, as marking time, right? But really he's marking geography here. Uh, ancient people, and kind of ironically enough, modern people, we do this too, but ancient people used to think that gods were just gods over certain areas of their life. They would think of God like the God of the hill country or the God of the sea or the God of the mountains, right? We do that. We think of the God of Sunday school or we think of the God of our job or we think of the God of sports or the God of relationships. We don't call it that, right? We're so sophisticated now we don't use the God language anymore. But we think of these powers over these areas of our life and we forget that God is the God over everything. He's the God from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. He's the God over the whole world, over all the heavens. And I hope you grasp how big he is, how great he is. Right, Because just like ancient primitive people were just as primitive, and we think, God only knows what I do at church, or God only sees what I do with my family, or God only knows about what I do over here. God knows everything. God sees everything, and he's the one in authority over everything. He is sovereign. He rules from on high. There's no greater God. There's no greater authority. There's no one else for us to appeal to. He, he's the ultimate God. He's the big God, and that's what we're told here again and again. Habakkuk 2.14 says it this way, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a verse that's uh, marked on Chris's guitar here. There's this idea that the whole world someday will be filled acknowledging the glory, the sovereignty, the kingship, the authority of this big God. He's God over everything. The question is, are you going to acknowledge his authority or are you going to pretend that you can hide from him and that you can kind of carve off little areas that he's not really going to see or he's really not going to have control over. That's really the question for us as people. Are we going to praise him everywhere in every part of our life? Are we going to give him authority over everything that we do? Are we going to say, you're God and I'm not. You're in charge, I'm not. We often try to make him smaller than he is. I don't know if you all remember this skit. I think it was on Mad TV or SNL or one of these shows that you shouldn't watch that I used to watch in the 80s. Um, they would, this guy would say, I squish your head. You, you remember that? Or maybe you've just done this, right? You know, you, you hold up your hands over someone's head and you can squish it. And it makes you, it's, it's really kind of fun, exhilarating. You feel powerful and big when you do that. So I don't recommend this as a lifestyle, but you might just try it to see what it feels like. Um, and so you see that in the picture. He's holding up his hand and he's squishing this person's head. And and this is, this is like acting out really how we live our lives. We're so narcissistic. We, we think we're God and we're in control of everybody anyway. And this is just kind of fleshing it out, right? Acting it out. We, we do that with God too. We think, okay, I, I can control you, God, right? I'm, I'm going to put you here. Don't come into this part of my life, God. I don't, I'm not allowing you access there. I'm going to do what I want to do over here. But you can be God. You can be the God of Sunday school. I will be the God of work. You can be the God of church. I will be the God of my family. And we, we try to control him. We try to make him smaller than he is. Problem is it doesn't work, right? It's just as ridiculous as when we hold our hands up. Our, our hands are not really 10 times bigger than someone's head when we hold it up and try to squish someone's head. We're, we're pretending, okay? I hate to break it to you, but it's not real. And, and we do that with God. We pretend that we're God. We pretend that we're sovereign. We pretend that we're bigger 
than him, but he's the big God. He's the one that rules over the whole world. So denying something doesn't make it not true. And so the scriptures, again and again, invite us to live our life in line with reality. He's the big God. He really is God. He really is king over the whole universe. And so we're called to to praise his name, to bless his name, to magnify his name. It says other places to glorify his name. In John Piper's book, Desiring God, he talks about this wonderful illustration I've used before of two different ways to magnify something. A, A microscope magnifies something in one way and a telescope magnifies something in another way. Do you see the distinction? A microscope magnifies very small things so that we can see them. A telescope magnifies very large things that we are just very, very, very far from. And so we should magnify God more like a telescope where we recognize it's really big. I'm just so far away. I'm just so separated. It seems small. He seems small to me because he's so far beyond me. But to magnify him is to acknowledge, to praise him is to acknowledge, to bless his name is to acknowledge that, that he's really that big. He really is king of the universe. He really is sovereign. I can whine all I want. I can cry all I want, but he's in charge. He is God. He is the king. And so my question for you is, are you magnifying him? Are you more and more turning over areas of your life to his sovereignty, to his rule, to his reign? Or are you more and more controlling who you believe God to be and trying to set your own terms and your own boundaries? Think about how you relate to other people. Think about how you relate to your life. Am I the one that sets the terms and the boundaries? Or am I constantly submitting to the leadership of the scriptures, to the leadership of God? Tim Keller talks about it this way when he's talking about living, living lives in submission to the, to the word. He says the problem is for many of us that we set the standards, we set the preconditions, and we say God has to be like this for me to worship him. He says, then that God has no right to edit you. That, that God is basically you. That God is you. If you set all the preconditions, if you decide where God can go, what God can do, what's okay for him, how he can lead, you're God. You're God. You're not allowing God to be God. We, we have to recognize, allow is a scary word, allow. We have to recognize, magnify, praise him for being the God that he is. His personhood is incorrigible. He, he is who he is, he tells us in Scripture. He is who he is. He, he is God. We have to recognize that. Are you willing to submit to who he is? And as we enter into that scary journey, that scary life of faith, we begin to recognize more and more that he's good, that he really is good, that he really does care about your joy more than you do. He really does love you even more than you love you. So we should praise God because of his, his bigness, his greatness. He's exalted over the heavens. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. And we have this transition phrase that moves us from the focus on God's bigness to the focus on God's nearness. And there's just a couple of verses in the middle of the psalm that show a movement, kind of a pivot point. So you could divide the psalm into two halves, recognizing that we're to praise God because he's big and recognizing that we should praise God because he's merciful and close to us. Um, But I want to just dwell here for a moment on this middle section, the transition. We should praise God because he's unique. There's this rhetorical question that the author asks us here. He says in verse 5, who is like our God? He's making a statement that our God is unique. So the first part of the psalm, he's big. The last part of the psalm, he's merciful and close and near. And the middle says, that's what makes him unique, that he's both and, right? So look at verses 5 and 6 
who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. If you've read the book of Genesis, there's a story called the Tower of Babel. And rebellious men are building a tower up to the gods. They're trying to exalt themselves. And it's kind of some humor there in the Hebrew where God has to come down to even see what they're doing, right? So like the people on earth are building the world's tallest skyscraper and are so impressed with themselves. And God's like, what, what are they doing down there, right? You know, it's like this idea he can barely even see them. And this shows this beautiful movement. We see this in many other stories throughout the Old Testament, but we see it most clearly in the story of Jesus this God who left heaven and came to earth, right? It talks about that in Philippians 2. He didn't see equality with God, something to be greedily clung to, but he gave that up and came to earth as a man, took on the, the form of a man, became a human, died for us, rose from the dead. It's this idea of this transition of this unique God, unique from all other world religions, where he's both huge and big, high above the heavens, and he's near and merciful, uh, the big words that philosophers like to use is transcendence and eminence. And the, the simpler word for that is just bigness and closeness, right? God is both big, he's, he's over everything, and he's close. He's right there with us. And so when some world religions really emphasize he's big. God's big, he's big, he's big. You've got to follow our five steps to be close to him. Or God's near, God's near, he's near, he's in everything. He's in the Coke can, he's in the rat, right, you know? So world religions tend to kind of bounce from one side or the other. Either he's, he's absolute or he's really near. Christianity says, no, he's both. And if he's both, you need a cross to make that work. You need Jesus to make that work. You, you need a God-man to bridge the gap. We don't bridge the gap to him. He bridges the gap to us. So let's read the verse again, verses 5 and 6. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? rhetorical question the answer is no one no one is like this god he is unique truly unique in world religions i have a chart here um, that just describes different world religions and the percentage and uh, all the different world religions that we have broken down according to country and continent and uh, how many percentage of those populations in different places are adherents of different world religions i, I encourage you to look into other world religions I, I wouldn't be afraid of that as as a preacher of Jesus. I wouldn't be afraid of that at all. Look into other world religions because it bolsters your faith in Christianity. Because the more you look into them, you realize nothing even comes close to our story. Nothing even comes close. As I've studied world religions and talked to friends of other faiths and studied philosophy, Christianity is truly unique. Christianity is truly unique. And so we praise God as this unique God. We say like the psalmist, who is like the Lord our God? Who is like him? He's high above the heavens and he stoops down to us. He comes down to us. You see this, this movement, this motion, again, which is seen throughout the whole Old Testament, but so clear, crystal clear in Jesus. It's made more visible, more real in Jesus than anything else. That's why we see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the, the sacred scriptures. And so we see this beautiful movement that I hope uh, you come to recognize, you come to praise yourself. When we gather to praise God. We're not praising ourselves. We don't gather as a congregation of people to, to praise God and say, hey, look at us. We're praising God. We're praising God because we genuinely believe he's good. We genuinely believe he's worthy of praise. We genuinely want to bless his name and say, who is like our God? He's unique. He's wonderful. He's gracious to us. And so this transition then brings us down to the last section where it focuses in on how 
close He is, imminent, uh, merciful. He, he comes into our world, even though we don't deserve it. He comes down to where we are. So I'll read 5 and 6 again, because it leads then in the rest of the verses uh, of 7, 8, and 9. It says, uh, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? And then in verse 7, he starts with some kind of concrete instances of his being merciful. He's merciful. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. So when we're to praise the Lord because of this action, this, this merciful action of entering into the lives of broken people. That, again, that's the kind of God that we serve. The kind of God that's close to the, to the brokenhearted, to the needy to the hurting, to the poor, to the barren. The first thing he says is he raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap. Um, the ash heap would have most likely been the trash dump because they burned their trash in those days. When you hear Jesus, one of the words he often used to describe hell was the word Gehenna, which was the trash heap outside of Jerusalem that was constantly smoking because they were constantly burning the trash to get rid of it. Right, And so we have an example of this here in modern India. We have scavengers working the trash heap trying to find something useful to sell and there are many people that make their living and survive on trash heaps and in this picture there's actually fires and they're trying to put out fires they have a fire hose there they're trying to temporarily put out the fire so that they can scavenge and then later on things will be burned again well our God is not only high above the heavens high above all things but he comes down to people living in utter Poverty lifts people up out of the depths of despair. That's the message again and again of our scriptures, that that's the kind of God that we serve, that although he could live and stay in his comfort high above the heavens, he's entered into our world. And, and the most uh, clear example, again, we have of this is Jesus. Jesus left the comforts of heaven. I think Philippians 2 is the great summary of this. John 1 talks about it. Of course, all kinds of places talk about it. But Philippians 2 makes it very clear. He didn't just stay in heaven, but he entered into our world. John 1 says he took on flesh and dwelled among us. This picture of Jesus entering into our brokenness, into our pain because of God's mercy. So we praise God because he's merciful. We also have another picture of him making barren women uh, the joyous mothers of children, right? So I have a picture here of children running around. The kind of God we serve is the kind of God that takes those who are barren and makes them fruitful. The kind of God that blesses those that don't have anything and gives them a home. And so throughout scripture, we see this picture of God's blessing. We had baby dedications today. We receive children as a gift. We recognize that children are a gift from the Lord. And one of the common ways that God blesses people is physically. He blesses people physically with things like children or in the verses before that, taking those who are poor and broken and raising them up out of the ash heap. And we want to recognize that that is real blessing. But I also want to recognize that, that some of you have not been able physically to have children. You might feel like maybe God isn't blessing you or hasn't blessed you. And so we don't want to lessen the blessing of children. We want to say that is a blessing that God gives. But we also want to recognize that God has a, a bigger picture beyond just physical blessing. And so as Christians, we need to work hard to keep Spiritual blessing and physical blessing joined together, but keep them in the right order. So when, when Jesus was on earth, Jesus uh, was constantly trying to draw people uh, away from their spiritual separation from God 
to, to the Father, and Jesus was telling us that he was the way to, to bridge that gap. And so he was always inviting people into the kingdom. He was always inviting people to the Father, and he showed us that he was the gap that could break down that spiritual separation, that spiritual poverty, that spiritual unfruitfulness. And we see this in Isaiah 54. If, if you are someone who is barren, maybe not even uh, dealing with the barrenness of not being able to have children as a woman, but maybe just dealing with the barrenness of, of a life that just doesn't seem fruitful. Isaiah 54 and 55 and 56 is a beautiful promise in Scripture that says, Our God is the kind of God that makes unfruitful people fruitful. He talks about making barren women glad and multiplying, and he's not talking about physical children there. He's talking about spiritual children. Same thing in Isaiah 56. He talks about eunuchs or the impotent men that can't reproduce, and he, he makes them fruitful. That, that's the promise of the new covenant is that God comes to those who feel completely unfruitful and feel completely impotent and maybe don't feel like they're producing what they want to produce in life, and God says, I can remake your life so that it is a fruitful life. And it's clear in Isaiah 54 and 55 and 56 that he's talking about spiritual reproduction. He's talking about investing your lives in the lives of others to bear spiritual fruit. And so, of, of course, we don't want to take away the blessing of, of physical fruitfulness, right? That God has made us to live in this physical world. He's made us to be physically fruitful. But the biggest problem that Jesus said again and again in the whole New Testament talks about Again and again, the, the problem is really our sin more than our physical problems. So when Jesus was on earth, he was inviting people to find spiritual healing, but left and right, he was physically healing people too, right? And what we see in Romans 8 is that those two things are tied together. Romans 8 says the renewal of the entire physical cosmos is related to the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. And that when that revealing takes place, the whole world will be physically healed. So the scriptures are very clear that God cares about both, but that our spiritual problem is the bigger problem. So that's why I say we want to we hold those things together, but we want to order them properly. We need spiritual rebirth before any physical healing can take place. But we also need physical healing, right? It's a broken world. We're sick. We're broken. We're needy. And the story of the Bible is that God came and took care of the spiritual problem first, and that we're on this path to the ultimate physical renewal of all things. So Christians, followers of Christ, should be about both things as well. We should be about offering the spiritual solution of healing in Christ, that Jesus came and took our sins upon himself on the cross, that he died to take our place, that he rose again from the dead, proving that we also can rise from the dead and giving us eternal life. So that if, if you trust in him, if you turn from trusting in your sin trusting in your false gods, if you turn and trust in him, you can have spiritual rebirth. And when you have that spiritual rebirth, then you should also be about the physical renewal of all things. We may not be able to fix it all ourselves. We look forward to that final fixing that's coming, that, that day that's coming when all things will be made right. But we shouldn't break those things apart. We should hold them together, just make sure we hold them in the right priority. Our bigger problem is sin but there's still all kinds of physical problems and Christians should be a people who, like God, are about those physical renewing in the world. We, sh we should be about those things. We should care for those things the way God cares for those things. So my question for you this morning is, first of all, do you recognize your own position of spiritual neediness, that spiritually you're on the ash heap? Like Ephesians 2 says, you're not just 
struggling on the water, you're dead on the bottom of the ocean floor and you need new life. Physically, we're dead. We're in the ash heap. We're barren. We need this spiritual renewal. Did I say physically? Spiritually. Spiritually, we need to be renewed. Our, our biggest problem is our sin problem. But when we find that renewal in Christ by trusting in Him, by turning from our sin and trusting in Christ and what He's accomplished for us, then we can be about sharing that spiritual renewal with other people, but also sharing the physical renewal with other people as well. Caring for children, caring for the poor, caring for those that are weak, caring for those that are struggling. We should be that kind of community. That's what God calls us to be. And we praise God because He's a merciful God. And whatever we praise, we're enjoying it as we praise it. And whatever we praise, we're going to become more like the thing that we praise. As we enjoy it more and more, as we see God as ultimate good, we're going to become more like Him, honoring the things that He honors, loving the things that He loves. And so we have this little short song of praise, this little short, simple song here in Psalm 113, and I just, I just want to encourage you not to miss it, right? Don't miss it because it's so short. He commands us to praise God that's good for us. If you've grown up in the church at all, it might feel like just going through the motions. But what I'd like you to do is think about the things you've been praising with your life. What are the things in your life that you keep saying, I need that, I want that, that's the thing that's going to make me better, that's the thing that's going to make me whole. And Christian living is taking your faith out of those things and placing your faith in the God of the Bible, praising Him instead of those other joys, recognizing that He wants your joy even more than you do. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you give us life through Jesus. And I pray that you would make us a people that give life to others, spiritually and physically. Help us to hope in you. Help us to be fruitful. God, give us lives that we can invest into the lives of others so that we can share more of you with this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.